0: Well, let's get to our passage this morning. We are continuing our study of Mark. We are in Mark chapter 7. Let me read the first 23 verses, and then we're going to break it up a little after that. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him, Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you could have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again, and he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Almighty, eternal, merciful God, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path open and illuminate our hearts and our minds that we may purely and perfectly understand your word and conform our lives to what we've understood through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. This passage deals with two phrases that I heard a lot growing up. Cleanliness is next to godliness and from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Sometimes it was my parents saying those things. They were, they were very orderly, organized folks uh, and also believe very much of the idea that uh, we speak what we believe and what we know in our hearts. Uh, but I think also the, the culture I grew up in valued, loved those phrases. The pa- this passage doesn't actually say either one of them, but as we work through these verses, I hear them. I can't help but be shaped by them. And that does, they do sum up well Um, some of the thinking in this. At the beginning of this section of scripture, the Pharisees, the scribes have come. Maybe some were already there. Some came from Jerusalem. Uh, They wanted to see Jesus. And by see Jesus, right, we know that uh, this means to criticize, to trap, uh, to otherwise undermine him. They take the opportunity to show him their standards that apparently he and his disciples weren't keeping. So the first five verses show us the Pharisees' standard. And I've given little subtitles because sometimes my points are a little boring. So it's one thing to be a legalist. It's another thing to be a judgmental legalist. Let me read those five verses again. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, Mark's way of informing his Gentile audience, some of the Jewish traditions, they might, customs, may, they may not know. Verse 5, the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Now this is the third time in Mark's gospel that Jesus' disciples have been rebuked for not doing things religiously enough right, to the satisfaction of the Jewish leaders. Uh, The other two times get recorded in Mark 2, where the disciples don't fast like they should, and they don't keep the Sabbath in the right way. And so here they're faulted for not washing their hands before they eat. Now, the Old Testament laws did not stipulate that you had to wash your hands or else you were defiled. Exodus 30 talks about how uh, priests in the temple needed to wash their hands when they approached, approached the altar to minister. Uh, is actually what it said was, washed with water so they may not die. That was, God was very serious about his priests being spotless when they offered sacrifices. But this was not extended to all people. There were no laws requiring non-priests to wash. So the Pharisees asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? And there it is. It's not that it's a rule they got from the Bible. It's just this tradition. The practice had become mandatory in their minds for everyone. Not just for priests that the scriptures had said. But the Jews had decided to add it to their rules. If you were here when Frank Wong preached on Mark 2, kind of an early passage, he talked about how the Pharisees had built hedges or fences around the laws, the Old Testament laws, so that they wouldn't actually break the laws. This was a good instinct, right? Uh, breaking God's law is bad, so let's, let's give ourselves a little buffer so we don't get anywhere close to violating. So they built layers on top of it so they wouldn't sin. And these were taken to the extreme. So it wasn't enough just to say, honor the Sabbath. They had to specify every single detail. One of the things they said was, you had to be very careful if you spit on the ground, because if it touched dirt and then worked its way in, then you were cultivating the land and you were working on the Sabbath. Can't do that. Let's try to think of some current examples of that. I, I think I, I got a pretty good one. There's an example of hedging, building a hedge around the law. It's what used to be known as the Billy Graham rule, and has now been called the Mike Pence rule, maybe, uh, because both of these men have declared that they will not be alone in a car, or maybe in any setting, with a woman who is not their wife. Um, And that's, hey, that's a personal rule that makes sense. Billy Graham was a traveling evangelist and knew that other evangelists had gotten in trouble, um, and he didn't want any kind of hint of scandal, so that was a wise rule. Mike Pence is a politician. You might have heard that there are sometimes sexual scandals with politicians, So they have good intentions. But here's the deal. Being alone in a woman, in a car with a woman, is not a sin, right? Adultery is the sin. So it's this hedge away. To decide or to proclaim to everyone else that if a married man is alone in a car or a room with a woman, it's automatically a sin is to substitute this hedge law like the Pharisees did. Again, it's fine for a man or for any, all of us to decide what standards work for yourself. We should all figure out what we need to do to live and respond to God's call to be obedient. But the question is, how much do we judge everyone else by that standard that we've decided? I hope you were paying close attention during the responsive reading, as you always do. Uh, from Romans 14. I'm going to repeat some of it. Verses 4 through 6 said, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. This is what we call Christian freedom. These are principles of Christian freedom that would have blown the Pharisees' minds. Right? To them, there was no freedom. There's no room to work out your own standards and conduct. Only their standards Counted and either you met it and were approved or you failed and you were condemned. So, the next section, verses 6 through 13, shows Jesus' response to their standards. Uh, it's one thing to be a hypocrite, it's another thing to be an upstanding religious hypocrite. And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. All right, it might seem here that Jesus is pulling one of the oldest tricks in the book. When you're confronted with something that you don't want to admit. right? You attack the person who's confronted you. You redirect the problem away from yourself. And then you can walk away and never answer it. Is that what he's doing? That's not what Jesus is doing. He is brilliantly answering the question. Why don't your disciples follow our rules? Which is essentially what they were asking. Why don't they wash? By pointing out the faulty logic and false assumptions that make up their worldview to ask the question in the first place. Corbin, the word that Jesus uses in verse 11, originally meant offering. And was used a lot in the Old Testament to describe something that the person offered up to God out of love and obedience. It is a biblical concept. But somewhere along the way, the Pharisees had changed the understanding of someone setting aside something for an offering so that they could mi- manipulate it and use it to their advantage. They began to teach that if you declared something in your possession as Corbin, set aside, set apart for God, then you couldn't use it. No one could use it for many years. It was actually forbidden to be used even if you declared it rashly. And Jesus points out the tragedy of how they had started to use this concept. They had taken this very biblical idea of committing something to the Lord as a way of violating another biblical ideal. Honor your father and mother. Because you set that aside And then you can't help your father and mother with it. It was hypocrisy. And Jesus ends by saying, that's not all. You got all kinds of rules like that. So Jesus rails against this hypocrisy. He says, your traditions are more important to you than God's word and laws. You look like you're honoring God, but you've got ulterior motives. Your hearts are far from God. And now you come after my disciples for not obeying your made-up rules? You know, if Jesus says something once, he means it. If he says it twice, he's really calling attention to it. I don't know if you noticed, Jesus essentially rephrases this three times. Verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men Verse 9, rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Verse 13, make void the word of God by your tradition. It keeps coming back. Jesus loves it when people keep the word of God, when we obey the Bible. We should never back down from sola scriptura, right? The word of God is our only standard for faith and practice, But the Pharisees were looking at this huge list of rules that had grown up in the rabbinic tradition outside of the Bible as their standard. And they were keeping these rules while avoiding or disobeying the true commandments of God. They were following the wrong things because they wanted loopholes. They wanted easy answers. They wanted that they were ultimately in their hearts. They were hypocrites. This is a lot of what propelled the Protestant reformers to bring needed change to the church in the 16th century. I don't know if you drew these parallels, but if you know church history, at that point in the early 1500s and for hundreds of years before that, the scripture had had basically been abandoned at that point. Very few lay people could read them or had access to them. The priests didn't even really read the scriptures that much. So the church had this huge list of traditions and rules that they had developed. Some of them twisting scripture, some just completely outside of scripture. So for one instance, the one that Martin Luther really came against, the church would try to raise money by selling indulgences, promising people time out of purgatory, an idea that they just made up, they invented. And then what they were actually doing was avoiding God's clear words in the Bible, that belief in Jesus Christ brings salvation. So the reform comes, and it's, we say always reforming. It's always a worthwhile exercise to ask if something done at church or something that is modeled or expected of you from another believer, ask, is this a biblical idea? Or is this something that you've developed for yourself and are imposing it on me? Uh, if it's someone else's tradition or preference, it may be helpful. doesn't mean it's biblical or mandatory. The final section in this passage, Jesus gives his standard. Verses 14 through 23. It's one thing to be defiled by food. It's another thing to be defiled by the evil in your heart. wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things, evil things come from within and they defile a person. William Barclay calls verse 15, there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. The things that come out of a person are what defile him. That verse he calls the most revolutionary passage in the new testament may not sound like it to us which is a good thing because it shows that we've been freed from this legalism this idea that what is outside defiles us may not sound like um it was so radical to the jewish mind so verse 17 says the disciples even had to ask him, what, what do you mean? Explain that to us. The NIV translates Jesus' reply a little more bluntly. Are you still so dull? It's not what's outside of you that makes you unclean and defiled. It's about your heart and your imagination. What, what your heart your imagination dwell on and what they desire Your internal desire to do evil things is what makes you sinful. We can blame our sin on all the things around us, right? The the environment we're in, the bad influences of the people around us, the devil made me do it, whatever you want to blame your sin on. But the truth is that we have within us the depravity and corruption that will express itself in all manner of sin. You saw the list. And Jesus isn't just talking about notorious sinners, right? Low-life con artists and the hardened criminals when he lists all those sins. Those things come from every class, every level of society. All of you fine, upstanding-looking people, we all have inherited depravity, And Adam's sin nature. We express what our hearts believe. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus said, elsewhere. This seems like a good place to talk about maybe what this does and doesn't say. Because as we work through this passage with the high school class last week, one of the high school students commented that this seems like a good passage to go to when you're trying to figure out what is appropriate entertainment. Maybe what what movies can I see? What what things can I watch? Um, That's a pretty natural question, uh, application, I think, that arises from this passage. And it's true that this passage seems to indicate that what is outside of you, including movies or TV shows, things that you watch, won't make you unclean. But it's interesting that the emphasis is on food. And Jesus says that food goes to, n- never goes to your heart, right? It goes to your stomach and then it is expelled, eliminated. But is that true of what we watch, what we dwell on? If you were here last week, you heard a sermon on Ephesians 5 and how we are to be walking in the light, imitators of God, it even talked about it, that it's shameful to speak of things that people do in darkness. And there are a dozen passages in the New Testament similar to that. And so I think we have to go back to the principles and ideas of Christian freedom. Right? There's no verse in the scripture that says you should watch this or that content, but not this or that It's a lot more about discernment and knowing what you can and can't handle at each age. It's definitely up to your parents until you're out from under their authority. But I'm a big believer in discernment. A key thing to remember about entertainment is that whatever you watch and listen to stirs around and influences your heart, feeds your soul for good or for bad, I loved It's a Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Have you seen that yet? Such a good movie. I would recommend it to anybody. It's such a great reminder to be kind, gentle, and loving to those around you. There are a lot of movies that I can't watch because they will stir up the darkness that is already inside of me. And there's some movies that I can't handle that you can. Some that I can that you can't. You have to know yourself. Be discerning. We could spend a lot of time fleshing this out. We don't really have that kind of time. But I just want to say that just because this passage says that outside things don't defile us, doesn't open the floodgates for believers to watch and be entertained by whatever they want. There's still great danger in letting your heart dwell on dark things. Godly living, requires wise discernment. Now the Pharisees, the focus here is on being contaminated or defiled by food or by dirt. Um, But did you notice what they really don't want to be contaminated by? Gentiles, pagans, ungodly people. Did you notice in verse 4, that the Pharisees washed fully when they returned from the market because that's where they would have come into contact with Gentiles and been defiled. Even though they were not ceremonially unclean or defiled as the Old Testament defined it. They looked at people who weren't of the same faith and didn't measure up to them as contagious, as dangerous. But that's not how Jesus saw unbelievers and that's not how he calls us to see them of course we should heed all kinds of warnings in the bible about not participating in the deeds of darkness and don't join people in their sin and be dragged down by them but i'm talking about the idea that being around unbelievers is threatening to you and somehow makes you unclean the idea that being, you, you're infected by people who aren't as holy as you, just by being around them. I remember a girl who came to my youth group in Florida, pretty rough around the edges. Had kind of a mouth and a lot of experiences that the other teens in the youth group hadn't had. But I was so excited that she came because I knew her mom and we were counseling their family a little bit and I was just glad that she would come to the youth group. But when she left that night, one of the church girls turned to me and said, wow, she doesn't really belong here. I hope she doesn't come back. I was really sad. I tried to help her develop a heart for reaching hurting people, but she had that. Pharisaical mindset. I don't want to be infected by that ungodly person. I hope that we can see that we bring Jesus to people, and we model Jesus in loving sinners and bringing the light to them. We carry the redemptive message of the gospel in every encounter. What are we but forgiven sinners? saved by grace that we didn't earn. If Jesus could never be around ungodly people, he would have left us alone. This whole exchange between the Pharisees and Jesus is really a foreshadowing of what is going to happen later in the Gospels. The Jewish Religious leaders are going to set aside another one of God's commandments for their own purposes. They're going to set aside the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, in order to make their lives easier and their power more absolute. Mark 14, 1 says that the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. And eventually... They got the intel that they needed from one of Jesus' followers, Judas, right? That allows them to arrest Jesus when he is away from the crowds. They judge him in their courts and they, then they pressure the Roman authorities to put Jesus to death. But their plan backfires because killing Jesus only accomplishes God's plan of redemption. Death could not hold the perfect Holy One, so he rose from the dead. And Christianity spread all across the empire, eventually around the world, as his followers, believers, presented Jesus as the crucified but risen Lord who takes away the sins of his people and grants them access to heaven. What's the answer to the problem of being defiled by what's in our hearts? In Mark 9, which we haven't got to, we'll get to that in our sermon series soon, Jesus says, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut them off. Right? If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better that than to be thrown into hell. But we know Jesus is engaging in hyperbole. He's trying to make this point. He's not prescribing that. This is his teaching method because he's already told us what the source of our sin problem is. Right? It's our hearts, it's in our inner thought life. And we can't cut that out. But we can get a new heart, not some radical. Heart transplant procedure that you need to get on a donor list for and find a cardiologist. Now, in Ezekiel 36, 26, God says, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Coming to faith in Jesus Christ not only sees all of our sins forgiven, And heaven assured, because he paid the penalty for them on the cross, it also gives us a new nature, a new heart. Our new heart beats for the things of the Spirit. Romans 6.11 says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. Are we perfect? Do we not struggle with those things? No, of course. You know, from experience... And from Romans 7, it's still a struggle with the sins that Jesus listed in this passage. Envy, sexual immorality, pride, slander, all of that. It's still there. We struggle. But we are now the redeemed in Christ. We are not defined or enslaved by our sin. Christ has set us free. And those whom the Son sets free free indeed. So we walk in freedom, not using it as an excuse to sin, and not judging others who don't measure up to our personal standards. But we commit ourselves to this word, to obeying the scriptures and living grateful for God redeeming us from the darkness of our former lives. Walk in the light as he is in the light. Amen. Take a few moments to ask the Lord to help you do that and to apply the message of this passage. And then I'll close. Lord God, thank you for this passage. Thank you that as we work our way through Mark, we see Jesus doing amazing things, healing, casting out demons, multiplying bread and fish. But as he teaches, as he tells us where we have miss the scriptures, where we have changed the scriptures, where we have perverted true faith, God, help us to recognize those things in our own lives, in our own church, Lord, bring us back to your scriptures, teach us how to walk in Christian freedom, not abusing your grace but living in thanksgiving and godliness. May we take these words that our hearts are naturally evil, inclined to every kind of depravity seriously. And may your Holy Spirit do his sanctifying work in us. May we war against the sin inside of us, but be gentle and loving and not condemning to those around us who struggle with those things as well may we lift them up believer and unbeliever it's your kindness that leads us to repentance so may we model that as well we ask all these things in jesus name amen first thessalonians 5 23 24 now may the god of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen.